This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. You've probably watched a sitcom like Friends and thought, how on earth are they affording that apartment? Well, for TV writers like those on Sex and the City, the answer is simple. Beauty is fleeting. But a rent-controlled apartment overlooking the park is forever. The magical rent-controlled apartment made its way onto many TV sitcoms, but few renters have experienced it. Today, only seven states in the District of Columbia have some form of rent regulation. But the tide may be turning with increasing housing costs. Rental prices soared during the pandemic, with monthly rents rising 15 percent between 2020 and 2022. According to risk management firm Moody's Analytics, the typical American is now rent-burdened. That means their rent costs more than 30 percent of their income. Evictions are also on the rise. Some cities report eviction filing increases of as much as 50 percent since the start of the pandemic. That's according to Princeton University's eviction lab. This has led some cities and states to consider some form of rent regulation. This month, three cities in Los Angeles County enacted rent control. Massachusetts may be considering rent control on the ballot next year. And last month, Maryland's Montgomery County voted to adopt rent stabilization. But are rent control or other rent regulations a good idea in a country with a growing number of renters? And what rent regulations actually work? We discuss those questions and get into a whole lot more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with our panel in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, Treachery, and Survival at the Edge of the World by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. Let's welcome our guests. Let's turn to Leah Simon-Weisberg. She's the legal director at the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment. She's also chair of the elected Berkeley Rent Board and adjunct professor at the University of California College of Law, San Francisco. Leah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Salim Firth, a senior research fellow and director of the Urbanity Project at George Mason University. Salim, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So let's just start with an understanding of what rent control is. Salim, how do you define rent control? Well, there's different words that are used, rent stabilization, rent control, rent regulation. There's no strict definition uh, splitting one from the other, but they, they all are some limit on how much a landlord can charge or how much a landlord can increase rent year over year. And how did rent control start in the U.S.? So we, we had the very first rent control laws uh, around World War One and the immediate aftermath there were a few Supreme Court cases, first saying it was uh, legal, then saying it was illegal. And then it really arrived in earnest during World War II when millions of people flocked into cities, but our economic you know, engine was not allowed to build housing because it was, you know, all its effort was going towards the war effort. So there was this short-term emergency of a huge increase in demand and no increase in the supply of housing 
that, that affected 80% of the U.S. rental stock. Currently, a 10% increase in rent is the maximum allowed under California state law. Aliyah, you are in California, where some cities adopted some form of rent control in the 70s. What do California's current rental control laws look like? Well, in California, we have, um, we're limited to what's called vacancy decontrol, which means that the, you know, as um, my colleague here was saying, landlords get to choose what the rent is kind of in between the beginning of the tenancies, but the government is able to stabilize the rent increases during the life of the tenancy. So what that means is that when you move into an apartment and you show that you're able to afford it, um, you can rely on that the rent's only going to go up with um, a percentage of inflation. Um, so most folks for the last 50 years, except with obviously with the exceptional um, you know, spike in inflation, um, could rely that their rents were going up you know, on average around 3% or less. Well, surveys of economists on rent control reveal they largely think the policy doesn't work. John Jay College economics professor J.W. Mason said, quote, it's become almost a textbook cliche. In any intro econ class, you learn about why rent control is a bad idea. Salim, what is the argument for why rent control is a bad idea? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and it's something that even, you know, strongly left-leaning economists uh, agree that rent control is the, is the wrong way to help renters. And the reason is, and this goes for really any price control across any kind of good, uh, if, you, if you control the price enough that it really makes a difference, then what it's going to do is push uh, landlords, housing providers, out of that market. So the town that I live in, in Maryland, has a fairly strict rent control ordinance. And a result of that is that a large portion of our vintage multifamily housing stock has been converted into condos. And no new multifamily housing stock has been built since that law went into effect in 1980. And, and when you say and, they've been converted into condos, these are condos for purchase, not rent? That's right. That's right. So, so they used to be apartments. They were built as apartments. And the owners said, well, I can't make money renting at these, these rent-controlled rates, so I'm going to condo convert them, sell them off, and get out of this business. And so you know, I, I think it, rent regulation clearly benefits the continuing tenant who continues to have their unit. They're clearly a winner there. But if you look at anyone who now wants to come into my town and rent, well, they're, they're looking at long wait lists and effectively just have to go elsewhere because there are fewer housing units here than there were um, 30 or 40 years ago. Well, that echoes an email we got from Rodrigo, who says, I agree that rental prices are out of control for many people. Unfortunately, I feel like rent control is only a Band-Aid placed on the situation, as seen in New York City, where there is high competition for the limited supply of rent-controlled apartments. In a market-based economy, the law of supply and demand shouldn't be ignored in housing. Cities need to rethink zoning laws and allow more building. Leah, as someone who crafts rental policy, what do you say to that critique that regulations limit housing development? Well, first off, we know that, that that's actually not accurate and that cities that have uh, rent regulations have seen by far more construction, I mean, above and beyond more than in cities that don't have it. And, you know, not only will they build more, um, you know, what we all refer to as market or luxury, which is not really actually needed, um, but, but also um, see more affordable housing built. So, so I think one of the, the big problems with this kind of, um, you know, that what economists say or don't say is that it, it just not actually doesn't actually play out. And remember that um, economists are just kind of philosophers. You know, they don't actually study um, 
you know, they, you don't see an economist who does research on specific looking at data sets. You know, they all just kind of have theories. And I think that that the folks who actually are looking at the data, the data shows that it actually is very successful. And um, rent control, you know, regulating a market is not um, just, it's not just kind of, that's the one, you know, the only strategy um, in play. But the, the connection between people won't build or they'll take it off the market, um, you know, they're doing it for other reasons. And the other thing is converting to condos, it's still providing housing. I think the bigger issue around, you know, the affordability crisis that we have. And remember, we're, this whole conversation is within the, the context of we are experiencing the worst affordability crisis we've had probably, I mean, ever, at least in the United States. We've always had, and I think this is also really important, we have always not had enough housing for the majority of the, the working population of this country. We, you know, I mean, I think, you know, there is a clear history we have had um, rent control. And in fact, we have had rent control on this planet since the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. because I, people I, are always taking advantage of that. I, I want to circle back to something you said, though, Leah, you said in cities that have rent regulation, there's more construction. Is that specifically construction for purchase or construction for rent? What What's the breakdown? Can you oh, point rental. to a specific, can you, so can you point to a specific city oh, where you've seen that Fran- happen? Yeah, San Francisco has seen more production than basically any other city in California. Um, there is a study um, out of Canada that showed, compared two cities, and I'm blanking on the two cities, um, that that the city that had rent regulation in Canada saw, you know, way more construction um, than the cities that didn't. So it's it's it is actually always created that, and part of it is because people want to live in cities where there's more stability. There. There are so many benefits when people are not overburdened um, and actually have discretionary uh, income to spend. But, you know, again, none of these policies can live by themselves. So when you have rent regulation and people who want to speculate um, find loopholes to use, which often is what the the criticism is. But this idea that people take um, properties off the market to turn them into condos, it's still housing. The Mm -hmm. real problem is when they take it off the market to create real estate in investment trusts and they suddenly become a you know it's just for investment it's no Mm -hmm. longer providing the you know housing Salim, we've got just about a minute before the break and i want to just have you lay out some of the other common criticisms of rent control well before we go move on i think i should address um Leah's contention that economists don't work with data. Um, that, that's a really big surprise to me as an economist because that's most of what I do. It's most of the papers that I read. Uh, so we, we do that and we work actually more carefully with data than say the, you know, comparing two cities that somebody picked because they wanted to have this comparison. I'm happy to talk more about that research. I think it's really important to just lay on the table. Leah is factually incorrect in her statement, and there's a there's a very long stream of detailed, rigorous empirical study. There are value judgments. I understand that people come to different value judgments about the the, the importance, say, of stability versus growth and new renters versus old renters. But that that does not negate the findings of 40, 50 years of research. We're going to head to a quick break here. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. 
Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if blocking those proteins and stopping runaway cell division was possible? Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation and welcome Kate Reynolds. She's a principal policy associate at the Urban Institute who focuses on affordable rental housing and housing stability. Kate, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Kate, currently only seven states and the District of Columbia have rent regulations in place. Lee and Salim are on different sides of this debate, but has enough research been done to know the effects of rent control in practice? That's a great question. And uh, no, I actually think there needs to be more research. Um, So we have some research on historic programs like the rent control and stabilization programs in New York City, as well as some research on new laws, such as those in San Francisco. Um, And, you know, it's a mix. Some of the research shows that rent control policies could hamper new development. Others show positive benefits in terms of keeping renters stably housed. But I think with the resurgence in demand for these types of rent stabilization measures, um, you know, we, we need to really understand and study how these policies are impacting the housing market that we have now. Um, to really ensure that renters are being protected while we're continuing to support new housing development. And that's a key critical piece there. Um, we, you know, we have been undersupplying the market for at least 25 years on the rental side. And so um, just need to be really aware of what these policies could do. Well, and, and is it also about not this sort of broad brushed research, but really specific housing markets, because the housing market in one city is going to be different from the housing market in another or a city versus a town. Is that part of what's at play here, too? Definitely. Um, So every market is different. Uh, You have the extremes uh, that we talk about a lot in terms of weak markets like um, Detroit, Michigan, where you have housing affordability issues, but it's because there just isn't enough funding to preserve uh, the housing that is there because the market doesn't support uh, the, the rents at the other end. And then you have the incredibly hot markets, which uh, are becoming more and more normal across the United, United States, uh, where we just haven't seen uh, enough uh, housing development in the last few years. And uh, we're really, you know, seeing some incredibly tight conditions. And so I think, you know, given all the various iterations of markets around the country, we need to take a a deeper look at how these um, policies are being implemented and and what effects they're having. This month, a group of 32 economists wrote a letter to the Biden administration arguing for national rent regulations. And many advocates across the country are calling for rent control in places like Philadelphia, Massachusetts, and in Colorado, where a rent control bill recently failed. Leah, do you see a shifting tide in thought around this issue? Absolutely. And unfortunately, it's because the crisis has really reached a place where there's nowhere affordable in this country anymore. I mean, places in Wisconsin, um, also people are struggling to to afford their rent. 
So absolutely a tide. I mean, when I passed the first rent ordinance in 30 years in California, it had been 30 years. And the reason was, is that more or less people were getting by in the majority of California and that radically changed with the foreclosure crisis. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, it's an important tool in terms of regulating the market when it has gotten completely um, out of whack. And, and that's what we're doing. Um, I also just want to emphasize that, you know, most places don't control new construction. And so there are different, you know, it's, it's a very flexible policy that allows for different pieces. So for example, um, you know, in California, nothing is regulated um, that was built in the last 15 years uh, at the state level. And our local ordinances don't regulate anything that was built um, after 1995, because of that um, concern that some developers articulated that they didn't want to build if they were going to have limits on their their profit line. Um, so yeah, we are definitely seeing a renaissance in this um, policy because it does work, and especially if you look at um, other countries, Denmark. Apparently, it's the happiest place on the on the planet. They have very similar rent policies as we do in um, California. Salim, you live in Maryland's Montgomery County. Last month, the county's council voted to... Salim, you live in Maryland's Montgomery County. Last month, the county's council voted to enact rent stabilization. The law puts a 6% cap on rent increases. What other places are considering rent regulations? Other places, yeah. I mean, you mentioned Boston is is, uh, debating it and Massachusetts statewide, Seattle, um, and uh, Oregon and California, both in the past several years, put in place fairly fairly moderate rent stabilization rules that are like in Oregon seven percent plus inflation, uh, and I, I think there's a much better case for those. Those those aren't going to realistically change market rents. So so you're um, making a distinction between um, rent control and rent regulation that just perhaps dampens the amount of an increase someone could see in their rent over the course of a lease? Yeah. So, right. So if you think about, you know, there's, there's a few different problems, you know, that, that can lead people to want to regulate rents. So one is just the, the overall level of rent gets really high. Policies that allow a, a, a 7 or 10% increase per year, they'll slow that down, but they're not going to stop rents from getting really high over the course of five or six years. The other problem is the sort of that, and, and a few of the, the callers that we've heard from with really sympathetic stories, is that, that one-time shock, the year-over-year increase. That can particularly happen where you've got, say, an inattentive landlord who has let rents and their, their property fall well below market rates, um, maybe hasn't kept up the property really well. Somebody comes in, buys it, puts on a fresh coat of paint, and doubles the rent. Um, I want to get to this message we got from Matt with uh, Montgomery County Renters Alliance. He emails, we cannot build our way out of the affordability crisis. Even with public investment, it would take decades to provide enough low-income apartment communities to bring rents down. Renter protections like rent stabilization and just cause eviction have little or no impact on development and investment in housing. In fact, highly regulated housing markets like D.C. and New York City and San Francisco have the most robust housing markets in the nation. I'm sure this is uh, something you hear quite often. How do you respond to this assertion that even with the public investment, it's not going to happen quickly enough to provide enough affordable housing for people who need it? Well, I'm really puzzled by the contention that New York and San Francisco have healthy housing markets. I, I mean, I guess that's true if you're an unregulated landlord and you can charge enormous amounts for rent because there's such a scarcity that's developed over 50 years. 
DC is really different than those cities. It has a, a barely enforced rent regulation and that, that exempts most uh, buildings. And Montgomery County, rents have grown less than inflation over the past several decades. So, you know, I, I think to some extent people are responding to the, the COVID inflation. Or we, we hadn't had a lot of inflation since the 80s. This was a, a new thing for a lot of us. And people saw their rents and all their other prices, you know, the supermarket, all increase because of this overall inflation. That's a kind of a different fundamental problem than a housing scarcity. But Montgomery County has built enough housing steadily over the course of decades that it's not bringing prices down, but it's also not really seeing them rise. And if you stay in the same unit over time, generally that rent is going to rise slower than inflation and slower than your wages. Kate, I want to hear from you on this because there is this revival uh, on around this conversation on rent control right now. Where does this the regulatory framework around rent control intersect with what is a lack of, of affordable housing in the U.S.? Yeah, thank you so much for the question. You know, I, I wish that were the case that... Um, you know, this was just an inconvenience. But unfortunately, I think that, you know, these rental prices really point to structural issues with our economy. Um, Incomes have not kept pace with rent growth or housing costs. Housing supply has not kept pace with household formation and the types of housing needs that we have. And unfortunately, you know, the, the folks that are at the very lowest income levels have really been um, experiencing a tough, tough housing market for a long time, even before these inflationary uh, you know, tides came to play during the pandemic. Uh, so we have um, you know, households that are headed by Black or Latino persons having much higher cost burdens than, than white households. Um, and you, know, you have to remember that uh, for folks that don't know, um, that you know, only one in four households in the U.S. that would otherwise qualify to receive housing assistance actually receives it because it's not a program that you automatically receive based on your income, like food stamps or Medicaid, and it's really woefully underfunded. So I do think that um, you know part of this conversation just comes out of this really um, long-standing need that didn't um, you know come about because of the pandemic. Uh, Leah, according to the eviction lab, as we said earlier, eviction filings are up more than 50 percent than the pre-pandemic average in some cities. And that trend is linked to rent increases and a lack of affordable housing. How much do you think rent regulation could help prevent evictions? Well, I mean, um, you know, the part that, uh, yeah, I mean, it makes a huge difference, you know, whether people can afford their units or not. And as the moratoriums in California are ending, it's exposing all of the people that we are keeping housed because of the moratoriums, but really can't afford the rents no matter, you know, without getting, you know, significant government uh, assistance. And I, I think that one of the, the pieces that's really important here is the government needs, we need the government to be participating in providing housing. And that's what's missing here. It how What happens in our housing market should not be dependent on the whims of developers. It, the idea that like they, we need to be coddling them so that they'll invest is really at the core of the issue. Um, you know, this is such an important part of our economy. We need the government to take a role and we need them to be constructing housing um, and we need to provide subsidies for people who can't afford it. And rent regulation is a big part of that. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in a moment. Stay with us.
This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more, then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. We're discussing rising rental costs and the call for rental regulations. We asked what you thought, and here's some of what you had to say. I'm a landlord in Tucson, Arizona. I'm appalled at the increase in rents. I'm appalled at the acquisition of multifamily housing by private equity. I'm appalled at the fact that there are 30 states in this country that make it virtually impossible to make rent control legislation at the local or municipal level. I think that rent should be pegged to the average income in that zip code and not a dollar more. Thanks for that message. We've seen this trend of investment firms buying homes across the U.S. According to MetLife Investment Management, institutional investors could control 40% of U.S. single-family rental homes by 2030. Salim, what do you think that means for the rental market? Yeah, so I, I've seen I've seen some of these scare stories about, um, you know, big landlords coming into single-family rentals. I, the numbers so far are pretty small. Maybe by 2030 they could do that, but also maybe they'll stop, you know, Buying, uh, buying new single-family homes. Most single-family homes are owner-occupied. And I, I often hear what seems like crocodile tears of people saying, oh, I hate private equity. And what they're really kind of saying is, I don't want renters living near me in my neighborhood. Kate, your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I do think it is a small overall portion of rental units in the U.S. Uh, you know, we see that owners that own about a thousand properties or more own about 450,000 properties. So that's a very small share of the sort of 22 million one to four unit um, properties that we have. However, if you look at certain geographies, like the footprint of of investor activity in um, Atlanta, for example, already you're seeing about um, 28% of all single family renters being investor owned. Uh, and I do think that there are some, you know, differences in the ways that institutional owners um, sort of behave that we can see through research. So um, one of the things that we've, you know, we see through multiple studies is that um, these investors tend to use eviction filings more often um, than smaller landlords. And usually it's it's meant as a rent collection technique, but it, you know, obviously would have a lot of uh, potentially negative uh, implications for people's sort of mental health, um, well-being, and and also you know a lot of people make the decision to leave their homes when they get an eviction filing before they even have to go to court, and so uh, potentially more you know renter instability. So I do think it's something that we need to keep um, an eye on, and we particularly in the places where 
um, you're seeing sort of um, large influxes of uh, of investor activity like the Sun Belt. Well, we heard from Brian in Austin, Texas, who says, I have a duplex that I have owned since 2004. I have always tried to keep the rent reasonable. A year ago, I had to raise the rent about 20%. This was due only to the increase in property taxes. My mortgage has doubled, and that is due to taxes. If rent control was in place and the tax increase, I would probably lose this place. And Stewart emailed us asking, what if you're a small landlord? I'm a hardworking landlord who spends inordinate amounts of his own money to keep places nice and habitable. Yes, I make a profit. It, but that's why I do it. I have recently laid out over $20,000 of my own money to fix issues. Rent control would destroy me, and it's unfair. Leah, according to 2018 census data, about 7 in 10 rental properties are owned by individuals who typically own just one or two properties. How could rent control affect small landlords? Well, one of the, the key things that protects all landlords who um, own properties in a market that would be regulated by rent stabilization, um, is that they always have the right to a reasonable return on their investment. And so every system, they can file a petition that says, in my unique situation, like the taxes have increased or I had to replace the roof, um, the amount I have doesn't uh, cover my costs and give me a reasonable return on my investment. So there is an automatic protection in in that um, setting. And I mean, from my experience, and, you know, I've probably been involved in, you know, probably over 30 um, campaigns to pass these kinds of regulations, that we always have this this narrative of I'm this poor landlord who, um, you know, is going to be impacted, when the reality is it's not true. We haven't seen people leaving the the market and giving up their properties, and that, you know, they're all making investments and that they they rarely file these kinds of petitions. Um, Kate, I, so I think it's working. Kate, I want to bring you in here because you worked with a group of landlords across the country talking to them about how to keep renters stabilized. What did you learn? Yeah, that's right. Um, I worked with a group of mission-driven landlords, um, which means that they provide affordable rental units. Um, so these landlords you know, have an orientation to want to keep their tenants stably housed, um, but they also face market pressures. Um, they have to pay their investors and debt service and ensure that they're maintaining their buildings. Um, so rent collection really matters to them as well. Um, and what we learned is that the you know almost $47 billion in federal emergency rental assistance that was passed during the pandemic was incredibly helpful uh, to keeping landlords' bills paid. Um, and that la- landlords actually generally try to avoid eviction because you know, eviction is also costly to landlords. You know, they, they face the cost of eviction filing fees, legal fees, lost rent, um, having to turn the unit, um, which can all add up to thousands of dollars. Um, so the landlords that we spoke with um, would really, you know, like the option to sort of mediate their disputes before going to court. Unfortunately, that's not an option in many communities around the country. Uh, there are some great programs like the one in Philadelphia that requires that landlords and tenants mediate first before going to court. Um, but in a market like the one we have now, you know, the balance of power is tipped toward owners of rental housing and renters need some protection. Um, but I would argue that landlords can also be part of the solution. And, uh, you know, we should really be thinking about them as part of the first line of defense against housing instability. Um, so, you know, really we need to understand more about their practices um, and how the market can incentivize the, the practices that help with tenant stability 
um, or how you know we can effectively regulate um, some of the things we don't want to see. In May, New York landlord lobbying groups petitioned the Supreme Court to take up their lawsuit against New York's rent stabilization law. Leah, how likely is it that the Supreme Court will take up this question? You know, I think that's, you know, we're all wondering if they're going to do that. I mean, again, it would be um, overturning, um, you know, 80 years worth of case law. Um, and it'd be pretty shocking. And I don't know where we would go. Um, if, if that were to happen, it would be as, as devastating as losing the, the right to um, choose whether you have an abortion or not. I mean, it's, it would be devastating. Um, I, I think it's unlikely. I don't think that it, it makes sense. It, it really is uh, irrational to, to think that rent regulation would be a, a physical taking. <laughs> well, we'll leave the conversation there and continue to watch whether or not the Supreme Court takes it up. We've been talking to Leah Simon-Weisberg, the legal director at Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment. She's also chair of the elected Berkeley Rent Board. Also with us today, Celine Firth, a senior research fellow and director of the Urbanity Project at George Mason University, and Kate Reynolds, a principal policy associate at the Urban Institute who focuses on affordable rental housing and housing stability. Leah, Celine, Kate, thanks for your time. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.